Well, good morning and welcome back. We are in the middle of a series called Just As He Promised. And this has been our Lent series where we've been journeying from Ash Wednesday, when we kicked off the Sunday following Ash Wednesday, to Sunday, Easter Sunday, where we celebrate Christ's resurrection. And that is the time of Lent in the church, and it's a 40-day period in which we are observing this 40 days to look, at, look forward to Easter and to prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christ's resurrection. It's a time to reflect upon what Jesus has done for us and how we need to submit ourselves to him. And it's a 40-day period because it mirrors the 40 days that Christ spent fasting in the wilderness before he was tempted by Satan. And so we've been in the series, just as he promised, looking at these different promises that were given throughout Scripture, these different promises that can encourage us as we pursue after Jesus. I'm excited to continue today. We're getting close to the end of our series. If you uh, have not looked at your calendar, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and the following Sunday is Easter. So it will be here before you know it. We'll be celebrating Christ's resurrection together and drawing Lent to an end. But before we move forward this morning, let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that each and every week we pause. We take time to open up your word, to seek to learn together as a community following after you, Jesus. And so as we do that this morning, we pray that you would give us soft hearts and open ears to hear what you have to say to us, that we would be changed by the truth in your word this morning. And Lord, may nothing that I say Get in the way of what you wish to declare today, but may you be glorified in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this week, we had some beautiful weather. And so I took the opportunity one of the afternoons to get outside and do a little bit of yard work. And I was picking up some pine cones with my kids. That's one of the great ways I love to engage my kids in yard work, is to say, find pine cones and fill the bucket with pine cones. Now, who here has pine cones in your yard? A couple of you have pine cones. I find pine cones extremely annoying. They get sap everywhere. They just continue to fall. I was looking outside this morning at my tree, and there was a whole bundle of pine cones that I was just seeing is going to fall soon, and I'm going to have to pick them up more. I tried to convince my wife that perhaps we could sell pine cones because people sell pine cones on eBay, and she said no one wants wet, damp pine cones from Oregon. So that was out. But one thing I found out this week is there are many different kinds of pine cones. And there are many unique features to different pine cones. In fact, one of the coolest pine cones that I've seen before, and let's make sure I try to get this right, is the serotonous pine cone. And if you haven't heard of the serotonous pine cones, they're found on lodge, lodgepole pine trees. And these pine cones are really cool because out of these pine cones, when there is death, comes life. You see, when forest fires move through the forest and they destroy the trees, it's at this time that these pine cones are able to spread their seeds in the midst of the death around them. It's the way that God made certain that the trees will continue to live even in the midst of the death from the fire. Yellowstone forest expert Ron Renkins describes them this way. He says, these trees, lodgepole pines, produce what scientists call a serotonous pine cone. Resin holds the scales of the cones tightly together. So if you look up a picture of them, they're completely closed together with the resin, and they keep their seeds inside of them. They can remain in the crowns of the trees for 30 to 50 years, and without fire, these seeds would likely never be released. 
But it's the heat from the forest fires that causes these pine cones to open up and for their seeds to be able to release. Once the fire burns through the resin that holds them together, the cone scales open up and the seeds fall out. After the seeds fall to the forest floor, the germination process begins quickly. The heat from the passing fires does not penetrate more than a few centimeters into the earth, which allows the material below ground, the nutrients in the soil, to give life to the next generation of trees. How cool is it that in the midst of fire, God made a particular tree that its pine cone is opened by that fire so it can continue the process and the cycle of life. It's so cool how God made the forest to work, how God made creation and the intricacies that he created our world with. Now you may be wondering, why do pine cones matter to me? Why are we talking about pine cones in the middle of Lent? Well, we're talking about pine cones because they have to do with death and these cycles of death that the forests have as fires come in and as trees die. And yet in that death, we see life spring forward. You see, part of the focus of Lent is death. It's the death of Jesus as we prepare our hearts to look forward to Christ dying upon the cross. We can't get to Easter Sunday if we don't have Good Friday and Christ's death upon the cross first and foremost. And so we have to examine during this Lenten season what it means to look at Christ's death and what it means for us as followers of Christ to follow in his footsteps even to death. In our text this morning, we'll point out what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus, how to truly follow after Jesus with our lives, we must be willing to die to ourselves. So join me this morning as we look at what Jesus means and how we can seek to live this out, starting in John chapter 12. So we're going to be in John chapter 12. If you're one of the kids who's following along on one of those worksheets that we have, it has the text there where you can fill in a spot where you can mark what the passage is. So it's John chapter 12. We're going to be doing verses 20 through 33. So John chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So we're going to pause there for a moment. We've talked before about the feast that's going on, about the Passover in Jerusalem, the yearly occasion where the Israelites, the Jewish people, would celebrate the Passover that had occurred back during the time of Israel's captivity in Egypt. When the Lord brought about the plagues and that last plague, when the angel of death swept through the city, that those who had taken the blood of the lamb and painted their doorways with it, that their homes were passed over. They were saved by Christ. And so each and every year, the Israelites were told to have a Passover feast, to remember what God had done, to reflect upon his provision in that time of Passover. And so every year, this feast would occur and everybody would go up to Jerusalem And Jerusalem was a city at elevation, so when it says they went up to Jerusalem, they physically had to journey up to Jerusalem as they walked to the city. And everybody was expected to come. If you were a God-fearing Jew, you were expected to be in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. But it wasn't just Jews who would come out for the Passover, as we see. Others would come to see what was going on. Others who perhaps were not Jewish in their heritage, but who had come to believe in God. Or maybe those who just were interested and want to see what was happening. 
So that's where we find ourselves in this scene in John chapter 12, is we find ourselves at the feast of Passover with people gathering in Jerusalem. And here we have these Greeks who have come. And these Greeks have come into the city. They're curious about what's going on, and they come seeking Jesus. They come to Philip, and they ask him if they can see Jesus. And they perhaps came to Philip because Philip is a Greek name. And while Philip was a Jewish man, maybe they thought that because he had a Greek name that he would relate to them a little bit more, that he'd give them an in to Jesus. That's perhaps commentator's best guess as to why they came to Philip, but it doesn't give them a direct in. Philip, in fact, goes to Andrew to try to figure out what they can do. And then the two of them go to Jesus, letting him know that these Greeks have come seeking him. And part of what's occurring here is perhaps what we see just previous to our section in verse 19, when the Pharisees fear that the whole world has gone after Jesus. You see, part of what has occurred is Jesus has been continuing in his ministry. He's been performing these miraculous signs. He's been feeding the 5,000. He's been healing the sick. And it's culminated in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, as Jesus gains more notoriety, as more and more people learn about who he is and are hearing about this rabbi who's traveling around, who's preaching a new way to follow God, and who's disrupting the very culture of the Jewish system, imagine the notoriety that he would have attained when he raised Lazarus from the dead. As people start hearing that someone was dead and Jesus, this rabbi, was able to come and to raise him from the dead. And so these Greeks come seeking Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It makes me question, are we too seeking Jesus? What does it look like for us to seek Jesus? Maybe you've heard about who he is, the wonder of who Jesus is. Maybe you've heard about the miracles that Jesus did throughout Scripture. And you're here exploring. You're looking for more. You want to know more about who Jesus is. Or perhaps you've been here a long time, and the question is a little bit different for you. Rather than wondering who Jesus is, maybe you know who Jesus is, but the question for you becomes, are you still seeking after Jesus? Are you still trying to place yourself before him, seeking to learn and to grow and to walk in his footsteps? The Greeks coming to seek Jesus gives me pause to reflect and think, how am I seeking Jesus in my life? Well, we don't actually see whether Jesus meets with these Greeks. We're not sure if he's talking to Philip and to Andrew when he makes his next statements or if the Greeks were given an audience with him. Whatever the case may be, though, we see how Jesus responds and what happens as these Greeks come seeking him and what it puts in motion. Picking up in verse 23, it says, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We're going to pause there because there is so much to unpack in those three verses. In fact, we're going to kind of break it down into three parts. The first being this hour to be glorified. Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Now, if we follow John's gospel and we've read throughout it, one thing we see is that there have been many times where as people have come to Jesus and asked things of him, he has stated that the hour has not yet come. You see that earlier throughout the gospel that three times prior to this, Jesus has said, the hour has not yet come. And yet now when these Greeks show up and these Greeks come seeking Jesus, he says, now the hour is here. The time for me, for the Son of Man to be glorified is here. And this idea of glorification, it's this idea of being lifted up. Some say, think of carrying someone off a field in celebration after a victory for a sports team on the shoulder of their fields for perhaps a game-winning glorious moment. And yet, even though that's the connotation with this idea of glorification, what we're going to see is that for Jesus, glorification does not come in the normal way that one would expect. And this is part of the issue going on for the Jews is that they expected their Messiah to come with might as a king who would come to conquer. And yet, as we've talked about in the past, Jesus brings about an upside-down kingdom as he ushers in his kingdom, which is countercultural and counterintuitive to how the Jews thought that their king and their Messiah would come. In fact, Jesus is going to be glorified not through moving up in stature, but in dying. And he tells us that this death brings about fruit. He says in verse 24, truly, truly, which we've talked about before, whenever you see truly, truly, it's kind of Jesus' way of saying, pay attention. I'm about to say something really important. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, Jesus uses this illustration of a grain of wheat to show that it's through dying that the fruit is born. If a grain of wheat keeps being a kernel in the head of a stalk, it will remain just that, a kernel. Only when it detaches from the stalk and falls to the ground, is buried in the ground, does it have a chance to produce more grain. And so Jesus uses this illustration for those who are present, for us reading today, to start to understand the importance of death in growth. That in Jesus' ministry, he has reached the point that his glorification is going to come through his dying. And that through that dying on the cross, that is when much fruit will be born. Jesus is telling us that in his ministry, he must die in order for the fruit to be born. The fruit of sanctification for you and I. The fruit of grace extended to you and to me. The fruit that Jesus has come to usher in culminates only through his death and resurrection. And we see Jesus not only teach this, but we see him live it out throughout his ministry and live it out in his death and resurrection. Last part of this section shows us that to lose your life is truly to gain it. In verse 25, it says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is letting us know that we must also be willing to die, to give up our lives here in this world for his sake. You see, it can be easy to grasp at our lives, to hold them tight, to think that we want to make them exactly how we think is best, to think that the time we have here on earth is truly the best time, and yet is such a small part of our life. It is just a small section of eternity And so to get so focused on our time here on earth, on what pleases us or displeases us, on um, what's important to us that's not biblical things, 
it's really getting in the way of how we need to live our lives. If our pleasure, if our comfort, if our way is our priority, we will in turn lose our life. We are focused on the wrong things if that's the case. And that's what Jesus is trying to drive at here is that if you are grasping at your life, loving your life, loving making it comfortable for yourself, making it about what you want, that in turn you're going to lose your life because you're focused on the wrong thing. Your priorities are not in step with Jesus's. But if we serve Jesus, if we give him priority above these things, if we follow him even to death, that is when we will truly find life. That is when we will truly experience eternal life. 2 Timothy 2.11 tells us, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. You see, when we're willing to lay down our lives, when we're willing to put aside what we want for Jesus, that is when we will truly experience life through him. The ESV commentary makes an important distinction on this section and how this word keep is used. It says that whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life there in verse 25. And it states that this word keep carries a connotation of possessing or retaining eternal life as though we must hate life in this world if we want to have it in eternal life. But the Greek word here is really talking about keeping it in the sense of having or retaining it. It's not talking about it in the sense of having or retaining it, but more in the sense of protecting or guarding. So it's, it's this idea that we want to keep our lives, we want to protect what we have in Christ. We want to guard what we have in Christ. Not be so concerned with the world, but with Christ and with his way. It's in dying to ourselves, giving up protecting or guarding our lives in order to give Christ the proper place as Lord of our lives, as Savior of our lives. This is when we live out the way of Jesus. This is when we are able to walk in the way that Scripture has instructed us. And the result of living in this way is that we will be honored by the Father. Verse 26 in saying, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, when we live in the way of serving Jesus, when we walk in his ways, the result is that the Father honors us. We haven't earned it. It's not something we can earn, but when we walk in that way, we will be honored. Well, Jesus continues picking up in verse 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. So despite the prospect of losing his life, is Jesus troubled in this moment, in this text that we're looking at right here in John? Jesus knows his purpose. He knows why he came to walk the earth. He didn't come to have life on earth. He came to fulfill his faithfulness to his people, to die so that we could live. And Jesus shows us his willingness to die, to submit himself to death, even death upon a cross. And how through that, God will be glorified. And the same is true for you and for me that when we are willing to die, 
when we are willing to submit our desires to Jesus Christ, that we will glorify God too with our lives. We see the result of Jesus' proclamation of his showing his intent as to why he has come is that voice from heaven that thunders out saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This voice that is given for the crowd so that they may see the witness to who Jesus is and to what he is doing, to the purpose of why Jesus has come as it is confirmed by God the Father. Well, finishing out our section, verses 31 through 33 Say, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from heaven, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, far too often people put off decisions of giving up their lives because they don't think that judgment is real or they don't think that hell is a real place. Or they think they have plenty of time. And yet Jesus is clear here in our text that judgment is real. That judgment is coming. Judgment is coming as Jesus defeats death upon the cross in his resurrection. The cross defeats death and paves the way for salvation through Jesus Christ. It lays out the path for us to be able to experience that salvation as Jesus was willing to go to the cross and lay down his life in order that we may experience life through what he accomplished on the cross, through his death and resurrection. The result of all of this is that Jesus says he will draw us to him as he's lifted up for telling his ascension here that would come later in the gospel. Jesus chooses to share these elements with those whom he's speaking to in order to give them an insight into his coming death. He's letting them know that the time has come The time has come for him to fulfill his purpose in being there. And he knows that through fulfilling his purpose, God will be glorified. As you and I seek to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, as we seek to live as disciples of Jesus and seek to glorify God with our lives, we too must embody this view of death. To follow Christ, we must die ourselves. So how do we do this? What does it look like for us to die to ourselves? I believe that we must be willing to practice sacrifice and surrender in our lives if we are to die to ourselves. And you may be asking, well, what needs to be sacrificed? And I want to highlight a few things that I believe will help us in seeking to die to ourselves that we should sacrifice in order that we can die to ourselves and live in Christ. The first is to sacrifice selfishness. We sacrifice this as we die to ourselves, to our priorities, to our beliefs that we know best, even above God. Far too often it can become easy to think that our way is the best way, that we know what is best, and yet that puts us in the place of God. It's a selfish view of our lives. One great example of what it means to die to oneself is the life of one of the most influential conservative theologians of the 20th century. To say that this man is brilliant would be an understatement. He graduated summa cum laude from the University of Berlin in 1927 with a doctorate in theology, a stunning feat, especially considering he was only 21 years old. He took up the cause of conservative theology and battled for the church to embrace a relative faith that would impact the world 
The goal was to change the world for Christ. He traveled to New York to further his studies and then took a church in London due to the unrest in his home in Germany. He began writing and publishing a variety of works on theology and on the church. And he decided that his calling was to assist ministers in Germany. He began to teach at a seminary in Germany, which was later closed by the Nazis. He then secretly traveled from village to village training ministers. The man would eventually return to the United States as a guest scholar at Union Theological Seminary in New York. But again, he began to feel the need to return home to help his fellow countrymen under Nazi rule. He returned to discover that his brother was assisting a group trying to overthrow Hitler. And he would soon be arrested for his association and assistance with those involved in Operation Valkyrie. While in prison, he would continue to write and to teach. He would be executed a mere three weeks before Berlin was liberated. And his writings are considered uh, some of the best and most classic regarding conservative theology. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And perhaps you've read stuff by Bonhoeffer. Perhaps you're familiar with him. But his witness is tremendous. And he one time said, when Christ calls someone, he bids them come and die. And he embodied that with his life. He embodied and sacrificed his self for the greater good, to glorify God. He sacrificed selfishness, his way, his desire, time and time again to serve Jesus, and ultimately gave his life to the cause. And we too must put into practice sacrificing selfishness. Don't allow your desires, your own personal opinions, to get in the way of glorifying God. It's far too easy to have happen. Our culture is telling us all the time that what you want is what's most important, that what you think is best is best. And yet that's not the way of Jesus. That's not how we glorify God. So we must practice putting aside ourselves, living in a way that is not selfish but selfless as we follow after Jesus and seek to glorify God. Second thing that I would encourage us to sacrifice is sinfulness. Romans 6, 11 through 14 states, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, part of our pursuit after Jesus, part of our pursuit trying to follow him, is a pursuit of holiness. And while we will never fully obtain a sinful, sinless life this side of heaven, it is something that we are to continually pursue after. It's putting aside our sinful ways, not because we can earn salvation through this, not that if we just don't sin enough that then we can have salvation, but because we want to be like Jesus. Because of what he has done for us, because of his love for us, we want to observe his ways, and we trust that his ways are in fact the best ways. If Jesus is our Lord, then we must not allow our lives to be given to sin as our master. We must not bow to our sins and follow after our sinful ways. That's not truly allowing Jesus to be Lord of our lives. 
Now, will we falter? Will we make mistakes? Will we sin? The answer is yes. You and I will both sin. The good news, though, is that there is grace for when we do sin. But our pursuit should be to strive after holiness. It should be to sacrifice our sin, to put ourselves on a path towards holiness as we seek after Jesus. We sacrifice sinfulness, trusting Jesus' way is better, that the light is better than the darkness, that grace is greater than sin. And the last way I want to suggest that we can put these things into practice is to sacrifice unforgiveness and bitterness. The weight of carrying around unforgiveness in our lives can do horrible things to us and to our relationship with God. In May of 2018, a Connecticut hospital had a group of 12 surgeons who came together to work for five hours to remove a tumor from the abdomen of a 38-year-old woman. And that may seem like a lot of doctors for one surgery and a long time for a single tumor, until you learn that the tumor weighed 132 pounds. A 132-pound tumor that this patient was carrying around. It had grown at a rate of 10 pounds per week. That's 40 pounds a month that this tumor grew. They say it may be in the top 10 to 20 tumor sizes removed worldwide. And while the tumor was technically benign, it was far from harmless. According to her doctor, the patient couldn't walk. She was malnourished because she had been unable to eat. And she was at extreme danger for blood clots and other blood vessel-related damage. Her very life was in jeopardy because of this tumor and the impact that it was having upon her health. When she first walked into the examination room, her doctor said, I saw fear in the patient's eyes. She was hopeless because she had seen several other doctors and none of them were able to help her out. Can you imagine trying to go about your day carrying around a 132-pound tumor? And while this tumor was said to be benign, it still impacted her life. The weight of carrying that around still had a huge negative impact on her day in and day out. Once they removed the tumor, she's back to a normal life. She's back to work. The doctor said when he saw her in his office, she was all smiles. I saw hope and I saw a happy woman who is back to her normal life and family. What an amazing gift that she now has. What an amazing joy that she must have as she has freedom from that tumor. And yet, just like that tumor, we do the same thing to ourselves when we carry around unforgiveness and bitterness. When we carry the weight of those and don't give them to God and free ourselves, allow Him to free us from those issues, we carry around something far greater than the weight of a tumor. When we choose to carry around unforgiveness and bitterness, it impacts us our relationships with others, and ultimately our relationship with Christ. You may think that it's benign like the tumor, but I assure you it is not. And Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. This includes our willingness to forgive others. Jesus tells us time and time again in Scripture that because we are forgiven by him, we too must be willing to forgive others. And as followers of Christ, this is part of what we must put into practice day in, and day out. We must be willing to forgive others. And so we must sacrifice that unforgiveness or that bitterness that we hold on to at times, that we think feels good or we think is deserved. We must sacrifice that to trust Jesus 
to trust his way, to trust his teachings. You may wonder how you can start this process. Maybe you have some deep hurts that you don't know how you could ever forgive someone for what they've done to you. I recognize that it's hard. I recognize that those wounds are real, that you have truly been hurt, and you feel that your willingness to, your lack of willingness to forgive someone is warranted. And yet, because Jesus calls us to this, we must be willing to walk this path. So I would encourage you, if you're in that spot, that you would start with prayer. Start going to God in prayer, asking him to help you forgive those who have hurt you. Asking him to soften your heart so that you may one day forgive. Then I would encourage you to take time to reflect upon the forgiveness that you have received from Jesus. To reflect upon the character of Jesus and how he treats you. I I am a great sinner who deserves all that Christ tells throughout Scripture that sin equates, which is death. And yet, I have been forgiven because of who Jesus is. So I must, in turn, forgive others. So the last step in sacrificing unforgiveness and bitterness is to forgive those who have wronged you and to entrust them to Jesus. You see, part of what happens when we're not willing to forgive, when we hold on to that anger and that bitterness, is we're putting ourselves in the position of God. We're choosing that we should be judged rather than trusting that God is a just and righteous judge and that God's judgments are the best judgments. And so when we hold on to those feelings, we try to take God's place rather than letting go and trusting God that he knows best and that he is just. In order for us to live, we must first die. Jesus modeled this for us in his death upon the cross and in living after he defeated death and rose from the dead. We must sacrifice and surrender if we are to truly experience life in Jesus Christ. Life how he intended for you and I to live it. This is the life that you are invited to and is the greatest life that you could ever experience. One of the profound ways that we practice dying to ourselves and living in Christ is through the practice of communion. It's a reminder each and every month of the sacrifice that Jesus made in dying upon the cross, the gift of salvation that he extends to us through his resurrection. When we accept these gifts, we proclaim with our lives that he is Lord. When we come to the table, we proclaim Jesus as Lord and we remember our place of submission to him as our Lord and Savior until he comes again. And that's why each and every month we practice this together. Each and every month we join together and practice taking communion as a reminder of what Christ has done 